Welcome to the Spirit Anointing the Word, the podcast of Highland Church, Jamaica, New York, with Pastor Subash Cherian. We're so glad to have you with us today, and we're excited about God's Word because it gives us strength and hope for each and every day. Let's listen as Pastor Subash shares this powerful message. Father, we come to you this morning giving you the praise and the glory and the honor and the majesty. There's no one as great or as mighty as you. And we come in the name of Yeshua Mashiach, Lord God, to recognize you, that you are sovereign and full of authority and that you have power all in all. That you, O oh God, have sent Jesus Christ to save us. And that precious lamb that was slain, all glory and honor to you, Lord. Thank you once again for this opportunity Open our hearts and mind to receive your word, but open our heart to recognize you, almighty God, that is here in the name of Jesus, through the person of the Lord Jesus, and Lord, Holy Spirit, take charge that we would be able to focus upon you, the word, the living word, and thank you again. Bless your people, Lord. There are needs, situations, conditions, and even, oh God, some going through very difficult time and i pray that in the name of jesus you touch lives today more than anything else oh god even their precious ones that are watching they would be saved born again because of jesus and all that he did that there would be deliverance and healing oh god whether it be in the spirit or in the soul emotions or even oh god in the intellect and mind and certainly god in the physical and in the wherewithal of all things that you would prosper your people now lord we just want to give you thanks for this time together that we can charge our spiritual batteries and to have an understanding help us we pray holy spirit minister to our hearts today for we ask this in jesus name and god's people said amen and amen give the lord a clap offering we want to go back into the scriptures and particularly we had been doing about the book of Revelation and we want to tell how important it is, particularly regarding chapter 4 and chapter 5. They're very crucial, particularly when you read the book of Revelation. So many people go into the chapter 13 and chapter 14 and they are frightened, particularly about uh, the beast and the dragon and the, uh, and the false uh, prophets. They're worried about this uh, powerful ruler that the Bible talks about in uh, chapter uh, uh, 14 or 30 and basically chapter, uh, for second, first, second Corinthians chapter 4, 4, talking about the God of this world and the ruler of darkness, Ephesians chapter 2, 2. Now I want you to understand if we did not get our facts straight and if we go into all the passages without getting to know what would be the most important crucial part this is the pivotal part of Revelation that we will be reading chapter three, uh, chapter four, and chapter five. Just to reiterate, here is John the Beloved, which is uh, uh, the Beloved of the Lord, the closest in terms of a relative or someone that was very close to the Lord Jesus, almost uh, leaning to the very uh, chest of the Lord Jesus Christ, and someone who knew him so well, and yet in a time of great persecution and difficulty, when he was cast away into the uh, uh, Patmos, simply to die there and perish there, it was at that moment that he talks about in Revelation chapter 1, 10, that he was taken up in the spirit and be able to see things. But when you come to chapter 4 and 5, particularly chapter 4 and verse 5, again, you find he's taken in the spirit, and what you find, verse 2, what he finds is incredible, the voice that says, come up. From then on, what you're going to find, it's very powerful. But remember, way before this, the Lord had spoken to him, and this is the Revelation, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 tells you the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. Now, this revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, which God gives, is simply what is going to unfold. So when you turn to chapter 2 and 3, it has to do with the church, the Christ in the midst of the church. 
My message in the long run is what would be the centerpiece, Christ in the midst of, or in the midst of, and then you're going to find a whole lot of scene that would be in the midst of. I won't have time to complete this. I thought I would be able to, able to do eight lessons this morning at the eight o'clock, just finished four, barely. But I would be talking about what would be Christ in the temple, in the midst of the great learned men, Christ in the midst of his disciples, Christ in the midst of his folks that were in the boat that was about to sink, Christ in the midst of two people that were hung on the cross, uh, Christ in the midst of disciples that were afraid, the resurrected Christ who comes and says, peace be upon you. And the way it closes is Christ in chapter 22, verse 1, 2, and 3, uh, verse 2 says, Christ in the midst, and that's out of the throne room of God, and you'll find the streams. Everything to do in the midst of. Now, I want you to understand how important it is, particularly when you read chapter 4 and chapter 5. Having understood chapter 4 and chapter 5, then you can get a better glimpse, uh, a heavenly perspective from the throne, particularly to do with all the other chapters which could be troubling if you did not come to chapter 4 and chapter 5. Many people take off from verse chapter 13 and other passages, and in doing so, you, they do injustice to what is the most important part of the book of Revelation. So that is why it begins in chapter 4, come up hither, the voice of God speaking, and I will show you things that is to come and all of that. But what you're finding in the central part of this entire book of Revelation is a picture of worship. So it's in a marvelous way these two chapters give you a full glimpse, not only of the consummation of the age, but the beginning of what would be eternity. And this is very important to understand at both the chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5, ends in infinite glorious worship. And if we did not get an understanding of that, then we get a picture that basically concentrates on all the other secondary things, as important as, as they are. So the priority or primary purpose of the book of Revelation is to begin in that sense of worship. We may not be in a prison in Patmos Island, but certainly many people are going through, whether in imprisonment of their own emotion, or of their own mind, of their own spirit, or in their own flesh, or in deep pockets in the situation that they're going through, certainly we need salvation in this area. I know a large majority of people are saved who come here this morning, but there may be a few who are not saved. And, and those that are watching, that uh, this word salvation is very important. Primarily, it's to do with salvation because of the lamb that was slain, to be finding that salvation for spiritual, what is eternity. But then there's a salvation that is continuing in terms of every aspect of our life. And the reason I say this is God has given us not some of the best angels, but he's given us his own beloved son, and his name becomes the finality of what would be the, the greatness of his name. Yahshua saves, or Yahweh saves, and that is the many expression of Yahweh, whether it's Yahweh Jireh or so forth, but what you're going to find is this is the culmination. Yeah, Jesus is the culmination of Yah saves, Yahweh saves, and what I want you to understand is this is pivotal because when you read the book of Genesis chapter 4, you're not given the name Jesus. There are so many aspects in the book of Revelation. In fact, it closes with Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega, with Jesus as the finality, and all of these are important. But the way that it brings about in chapter 4, it begins, is by saying in chapter 5 and verse 6, the lamb that was slain. And then a continuous sense of 31 times this expression, lamb, now, that is from a perspective of heaven because everything to do with our salvation, the very fact that we're in the presence of the Lord is based on marvelous is that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, but it was in the symbolic or marvelous image of a lamb that was slain. And we'll come to that in chapter 5. But the way it begins 
in chapter 4 and verse 2. And I want you to understand it begins by saying about a throne and one that sat on the throne. And the way chapter closes that you find in verse 11 is marvelous. And both the chapters closes with words of praise, words of worship. This is uh, for infinity. And this is the word that is coming from the angelic being, from the 24 elders, from the four living beasts. And these are the words they say, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they were created, created all things, and this is the reason for Thy pleasure they were created. So we need to understand that that chapter 4 has so much to do with God who is the creator. God who's created all things, not simply for us, but for his pleasure. And later on, we're going to find that for his pleasure in which he delights, the pleasures of God, and that we could delight in the pleasures of God. But it was so that we would enjoy the worship and the praise of the infinite one who sits on the throne. Of course, we know that in the Old Testament, his name is Yahweh. They addressed him as Adonai. He is the uh, El uh, and all of the adjectives of that, the Lord. But simply, it begins with Elohim and then closes with Yahweh, Yahweh Jireh, and so forth, and closes with a marvelous word of Yehovah says, or Yeshua. Now, I want you to recognize that even as we begin with this called in verse 2 of chapter 4, the one that sits on the throne, I will explain about it in just a moment. We understand that the concept of God and the infinite one and his name, Yahweh, all that is great, but Jesus delighted to call him what would be the ultimate, ultimate expression of intimacy, which is impossible in any other religion. The very word is blasphemy, but this is an intimacy with God that we call him Father. In fact, Jesus' address to the God has always been Father. And except one time when he said, my God, my God, when he comes in our place to atone for our sin, according to Psalm 22, verse 1. So that was the only time he talked about Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabbath, or simply Abba, or I'm sorry, simply to say God, my God, my God. But everything else is the Father. And yet, when you turn to chapter 4 and verse 2, it is uh, what a marvelous say in which the one that sits upon the throne. And that is how it, chapter 4 starts with and closes with worship in verse 11. But when you turn to chapter 5, it's a marvelous way in talking about, now like we said, he should have been called Father or Yahweh, it's one. But here in chapter 5 and verse 6, we're talking about the land that was slain. Why not Jesus? Why not the Word? Why not crystal? Why not, uh, why not the Word became flesh? All the adjectives of our Lord and Savior with so many innumerable names. But where this comes to is the most important and the symbolic uh, imagish, imagery of this, uh, uh, what would be the lamb that was slain. Of course, later on we will find the various names like Jesus in chapter 21, chapter 22. But it is so important for us to understand 31 plus times in the book of Revelation, he's called the Lamb. It is very important, like I said, it's because everything to do with our salvation, the fact that we're in heaven is only because of the one that is called Jesus, the one that is the Word became flesh and dwell among us. We beheld his glory, but the most important is, never forget the sight, and that is the wonder of it all, that we are saved and we are in heaven because of this lamb that was slain. So keep that in your mind. So this is how uh, chapter 5 and verse, uh, uh, two, uh, verse uh, 6 tells us. Now how does chapter end, chapter 5 end? The same way it closed in honor and worship of the Father, you find in verse uh, chapter 5 and verse 12. Look at what it says. Worthy 
singing uh, with a loud voice, worthy the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Then coming down to verse 13, it continues, and every creature that is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, such as are in the sea and so forth and so forth. And what are they saying in verse 14? Now to the one that sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and forever. It's a marvelous, amazing way in bringing glory. Now, what you find in chapter 4 is glory to the Father or the one that sits upon the throne. In chapter 5, it is glory and honor and praise to, to the Lamb that was slain. But I want you to understand, it so delights the Father to bring glory and honor and majesty to His Son. And I will explain, though, how many times they malign Him blasphemy against him, calls a whole lot of weird names like nobody else's business. In fact, everything else would be looked down upon if you were to put in your t-shirt something, it would designate, it would dignate someone who would be offended by that, or maybe some uh, group of people or a nation or faith or whatever, so you don't do that. In some places, in some parts, it would be even federal crime. Yet, to put F Jesus and go to school, no problem. We live in a secularist, what would be humanistic world that has no value for God and particularly for the Lord Jesus. And yet it's going to surprise them that large amount in heaven of, sp of time and what would be uh, the written uh, scriptures, it is the glory of the one they despise and that is glory to the Lamb. How important is that when you turn to verse 13 of, Revela of Revelation chapter 5? I want you to look at it. We said thousands, but here it says, Every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea, and all of them heard I saying blessing. And then earlier to that in verse 12 and earlier, it talks about without, num without uh, it goes on, and I beheld the voice, and it, it is usually, it's a large number, 10,000 times 10,000,000, so innumerable that cannot be counted, and that is the value they place upon the slain Lamb of God. Now it's interesting, chapter 4, of course, is worthy and worship to the Father. He's the creator, and he's the maker of all things, and this is a sense that we're here because of him. All things were made by him, and the fact that all things are for his pleasure. Chapter 5 is a song of redemption, for he has saved us, and he's made us priest and king. So it's marvelous to realize the sense of worship and the sense of worthiness or worthfulness of the one that sits on the throne. He's done all these marvelous things. And chapter 5, it becomes personal to us who know the Lord Jesus and who love the Lord Jesus because it is our redemption. Never forget it. Never forget it. In the midst of bliss of all of the heavenly beauty and grace and everything that we enjoy, never for a moment should we ever forget the one who gave his life, and that is why the book of Revelation, 31 plus times in the book of Revelation, says the lamb that was slain. So this is a marvelous picture that we get. Now I want you to realize, when you turn to chapter 4 and chapter 5, the worship is commonality, and yet you find in 4, it is the father, and chapter 5, it is the son or the lamb. One of the things we must recognize in the Christian world, we basically end up taking one and not taking the other. So in many places, they reject Yahweh. And particularly when you think in terms of the Father, there's no songs or hymns about the Father. And then folks like Jehovah's Witness and others, they totally omit the Son. 
But to get a proper understanding, we must understand the fatherhood of all who love the Lord Jesus. And he is so important, our praise to him. And then, of course, to the son, who is the lamb that was slain, our worship. And that is a choir that is innumerable, that comes in a canopy of awesome worship that goes to the highest possible in a way that is indescribable. The praise is uh, that is without numbers, and the praise reaches the highest zenith, and it's marvelous. But yet I want you to understand, when you look at the Godhead, and I will talk about the Father, God, the Son, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are in the vicinity of the center, and that is why I'm going to talk about the centrality in the place of the center. It's very important. So you're going to find that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have very much in there. And so when, particularly when the Lord Jesus Christ was speaking to his disciples, he's talking about seek first, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the other things are secondary. So we need to seek for employment. We need to seek to be better educated. We need to seek a house. All of that is there then to seek a mate or whatever. But the most important thing to seek is to seek the king. The kingdom is righteousness to do with God, to do with everything to do with Godhead. But what you find in John chapter 10 and verse 30, an astounding statement by the Lord Jesus Christ when he said, I and my Father are one. That is hard to believe, particularly for religionists, but basically we need to understand comparing scriptures with scriptures, chapter 4 and chapter 5. It's not about this or that, it's a oneness of the two. And again, with the Holy Spirit, it is a oneness in the three in one. Now in John chapter 14 and verse 1, let not your hearts be discouraged. You believe in God, believe in God, believe also in me. So it's very common to have a belief in God. We all believe in God. Uh, atheists are the few people, but the vast majority, even the atheists, when they fall into trouble, they say, oh God help me. Suddenly they become in a foxhole, uh, basically people who believe. But Jesus adds, believe also in me, and that is very important. Because when you turn to a passage where in the same chapter, Philip asks, show us the Father, and in chapter 14 and verse 9, listen to what he says. He says, have I not been so long with you, and yet have you not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father, and how sayest thou, then show us the Father? <coughs> Excuse me. No man had seen God at any time. He's a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit. But if God were to put on flesh, <coughs> what would he be? How would we know him? And yes, God did put on flesh in the second person of his son. And you're going to find the amazing aspect of his coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as to do with one. Redemption. He's a great teacher. He's a great healer, he's a great prophet, but never forget for one sense that he's the Lord, he's the king, and he's the one who gave his life for us. And that's the importance. And so there's a lot of worship, not simply among the redeemed, the redemption song, but there's a large numbers of heavenly beings praising God on our behalf for what he's done. Remember, for every soul that is saved, Luke chapter 15, the angels rejoice. It's a marvelous rejoicing, a big party in heaven. They rejoice when, when people are saved, when people are added, and redemption work is being completed. So redemption is very important. There's a great rejoicing among the various uh, uh, segment of angels or various sections of angels, whether it be archangels or seraphims or cherubims and so forth and so forth. There's a great rejoicing in the rank of heavenly, uh, except, of course, sadness in hell and sadness uh, among the satanic hosts that are in, on earth. Now, I want us to realize that in both the chapter that you find, there's a sense of uh, what would be one that's seated on the throne and the one that is in the midst of the throne and described as, in the way the Lord Jesus Christ described, is as the lamb that was slain. 
But chapter end, as I said, and chapter 4 and chapter 5 ends in profuse praise to Almighty God and that you find also in the Lamb of God. What I want you to understand is the way that I mentioned the last time is right in the midst, and that would be my sermon that would continue, God willing, next Sunday and probably the following Sunday before I close it. It's to do in the midst, and everything to do in the midst, whether Jesus was amongst the people or in really in heaven, you're going to find a whole lot. And that is, he's in the midst of uh, life, he's in the midst of the river that flows, and out of him proceeds all of this the way we close in chapter 22. But I will be talking, I thought I would be able to do it today, but I realized I couldn't when I basically could not finish uh, the fourth point, this is the eighth point, talking about the battle for the center. There is the throne and he who touches your throne has got you totally, spirit, soul, and body. And I want you to understand, it didn't begin in your heart, the throne of your heart, but it began all the way in heaven, reaching out to the throne of God. And I'm going to talk about how this angel, the morning star, the luminous one, the shining light, became darkness because of all things he stretched out and wandered that throne. And how Lucifer was cast down into the earth, and you're going to find he was so jealous when man and woman were thrown into the Garden of Eden, and he did everything to take the center attraction. And literally, he took by hook or by crook that throne that was man under God, a kingship, a dominion, and yet you find it was given hook, line, and sinker to Satan, and he becomes the god of this world, the prince of darkness, and so forth. This, tell, I may give you the reason why God has allowed it for the time being, because our salvation is purely by the grace of God, because of what Jesus did. And if we were to leave here and to depart in the flesh, we would be in the spirit right there, just like that. But then we tend to think that heaven is a sense of socialism or communism. Everybody is equal. The blood has saved equally the rich, the poor, the black, the white, the brown, or whoever. Nation upon nations and kindred, we are told, will worship in chapter 7. But our position, our reward, and who we are in heaven is dependent on this life this earthly pilgrimage, and what we do for God. So that's the reason Revelation comes into being. John must have wondered, where is God? I was so personal with Jesus. Now look at the mess I'm in. And many Christians have gone through the self-doubt, why? And the Lord opened up his mind and his heart, and the spirit he was taken up to heaven, to make him realize what is in the grand scheme of it, things eternally, for him to realize what a mighty, powerful plan God has. So chapter 4 and chapter 5 has to do with the ultimate purpose of God, and chapter 4 and chapter 5 of the book of Revelation has to do with what would be eternity played out after the final consummation of what would be of this world, and Satan has been cast out with all his uh, host, and where man has been taken up and enjoys the greatness and the powerful things that God has uh, created for man. So here's the unfolding of the purposes. No matter how difficult you're going through, there is a reward. And your reward in your position, the fact that chapter 1 and verse 6 and chapter 5 and verse 10 has to do with us, we are created unto God because of what Jesus Christ, the slain lamb, has done to make us priests and kings. That is very powerful. So priest, I thought that was a duty here on earth. Kings, I thought we were never meant to be but far beyond, not simply in the scope of the world or globe, far beyond all what was called creation, far beyond globe. And that is 
way beyond what our eyes could even see and the latest and the best of instrument could never fathom, far beyond that you call creation, are people God has called to be priests. And you find a falling down and casting your crown that is giving us priest to God, what is there to give? We're not told so many things, but we can understand the priestly duties because everything in heaven, even the temple, was according to what God had said. And whether it be the ark, whether it be the temple, Noah and particularly Moses did exactly. And when you look at the temple, it's a prototype of what would be in heaven. It would be a copy of everything that would be the, in heaven. So there is no temple in heaven. I will come, uh, come to that. The, the, the God and the Son is the temple, who's the light. There's no light, there's no sun, but he becomes everything. So all of what we see is a reflection of the one that reflects that is the Son of God, greater than the S-U-N. What I want you to understand is when you begin, it's matter of the one on the throne, and 5-6 talks about the one that is slain. Chapter 11 of 4 talks about worship. Chapter 5 and verse 12, 13, 14, 15 talks about worship to the Lamb. Now, I want you to get a glimpse of what would be around, everything around and bang in the center of all of creation. Not I'm talking about globe. Far beyond what we can even see or imagine, right in the center is the throne. Right in the middle and I'm talking about the midst, is the Lamb of God. And then around it are marvelous expression of round about the throne. Centers of everything is the throne, is the one that seated upon it and the Lamb that was slain. And the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, I'll talk about it. But I want you to understand the way it begins and gives us the expression of roundabout. Chapter 4 and verse 3, when you read it, you get, was to look like jasper. There's no way you could explain those precious stones except that you find the 12 stones in 28 and verses 17 and 20 of Exodus. And you find the expressions of all these marvelous stones. And I will talk about Lucifer, and he could only have Nine, uh, three were missing the closest to his heart. I'll explain that, not for today. But you're going to find there was a rainbow round about the throne in the sight unto emeralds. So when you turn to verse 4, again there are 24 elders round about the throne. So I want you to just think about it in the in the midst of nothingness, and yet there's humong of everything that we can't see, is the throne. And round about the throne are so many things, but then we are told 24 elders, and they are seated. And then when the worship begins, they fall, they bow down, and they are prostrating themselves. It's a marvelous way in which it's expressed. And uh, I want you to understand worship is something that... Uh, there's no position to it, but in the sense of formality, you're seated, you praise the Lord, you stand, you praise the Lord, the priest never sat down, but in heaven, the 24 elders seated, and they fall, uh, all the way chapter 17 and verse 14 says, they fall down before his presence. But here is 24 elders, and when you go down to chapter 4 and verse 6, you're going to find again something that is before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystals in the midst, in the midst, in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were the four living creatures. They were the, the finality of God's great uh, creation. Something that is stupendous, something that we can't believe and understand. I know King James Version says uh, the beast, but uh, when we think about the beast, I mentioned the last time, we tend to think of some animals. No, this is the highest of all creation. The living creatures, that's the highest, uh, whether it be angels, is the highest form. They are the closest to the throne room. And the moment they say, holy, holy, everything falls down. 
It is uh, worship to the highest in it that you could even imagine. The praise and the worship reaches the highest crescendo. So, here you find then and again in chapter 7 and verse 11 of the book of Revelation, you're going to find all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four living creatures and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God. So, this is another that they all are round about, but just in passing, I want you to understand there's a freedom, as they said. There's a freedom as they stand, and there's a freedom as they bow down. And please be uh, known here that we have no rules when it comes to worship. You just want to fall down on your feet. You want to prostrate. You want to just sit down and worship. Feel free. And if the Holy Spirit tells you to just bow down, and I've seen people come down and kneel down, that is full expression of worship, and that is uh, important. And uh, it's nothing you're breaking any church rule. When it comes to worship, it finds its fullest expression when we kneel before the Lord. But you can be seated like the 24 elders, or you could stand like the priest in the Old Testament. It is marvelous. But now, that being said, round about the throne and about 24 elders... They fell before the throne. So there's a sense of round about the throne. All this to say that in the midst of, there are things round about, round about, right in the middle, right in the center, the centerpiece of everything, and everything else rotates around it. It's simply the throne. Not the throne alone. It is the one that is seated on the throne, and in the midst of it, is the slain lamb or the lamb that was slain and that is very important the centerpiece now that is our chapter four and chapter five once you got a grip of that and the worship of the one that's seated on the throne and the one that is slain for our behalf that we have entrance that's why the door is open and in chapter four and verse one come in so that being said now you're going to find round about the throne is the Holy Spirit. It's very important because the only reason that we can recognize all of that takes place, which John did, it was because of the Holy Spirit. So when you turn to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, he simply says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and that's what happened. So in fact, in verse 4, he tells us what takes place and it says, which is come, and from the seven spirits which are before the throne. So when we went to chapter 4, but listen to how chapter 4 is bringing the expression in, in chapter 4 and verse 2. Again, the Holy Spirit. He says, immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, the throne room was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So I was in the Spirit. So all of this is very important for us to understand. A heavenly perspective can only be through the Holy Spirit. In the human spirit, in the human uh, flesh, we have two eyes, we have two ears, we have nose, we have uh, feelings we can touch, we have taste buds, but not so when it comes to the heavenly things, and particularly to with uh, timeless eternity and to do with uh, what would be uh, heaven, it must come from the perspective of the Holy Spirit. I want you to realize how important it is because there's so much that we could learn from, but suffice to bring this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 and verse 10. Look at the way that Paul says, For as it is written, I hath not seen, nor hear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. How shall we know? Verse 10 goes on to say, But God has revealed them to unto us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God, the very depths of God. Who can know? But the Holy Spirit searches and begins to give us. And so Jesus, our Lord, said, the Spirit will teach you all things concerning Him and remind you of the words that He speaks. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Never ever disregard the Holy Spirit. Everything else said against this or that can be forgiven, but what you say against the Holy Spirit is never forgiven. That's how important the person of the Holy Spirit is. Now that being said, 
Here is what Jesus the Lord speaks to John when he was, basically before he was taken, and he was in the midst of the seven uh, lampstand. He was in the midst of the church. I will talk about that another time. But what you find is now he that has ears hear what the Spirit says, not only what you see, but you are able to hear. So there's so much, if I don't expect that to be thrown on the board, but Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, he that has ears, let him hear. Revelation chapter 2, verse 11, he that has ears, let him hear. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, he that has ears, let him hear. Revelation chapter 2, verse 29, he that has ears, let him hear. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 6, he that has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 13, hear what the Spirit says. Revelation chapter 3, verse 22, hear what the Holy Spirit says to the church. So, with regard to the church, we must be able to recognize the third person the, of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, that we must be able to be hearing. And if you want to see from a heavenly eternity perspective, far beyond the eyes of a prophet or the eyes of an eagle, it must be with the eyes of the Holy Spirit and ears that only the Holy Spirit can speak to us. What I find is in chapter 5 and verse 6, even about the slain Lamb of God, it says that I've been slain having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits sent, from, uh, uh, sent forth unto all the earth. And that itself is because of the Holy Spirit we are able to recognize the Lamb that was slain. The people in the world would not. I want you to realize how important it is because even those who die, there's a sense of reward. And when you turn to Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13, this is what saith the Holy Spirit. I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, says the Spirit. That is what the Holy Spirit says. It's the Holy Spirit that transports saints, and that is a recognition even there. The prophet of the Old Testament, Ezekiel, chapter 37, Ezekiel, he was transported by the Spirit into the valley of the dead bones. We're not talking about valley of dead bones. But when you turn to chapter 17 and verse 3, you're going to find, he says, he carried me, that's the Holy Spirit in the Spirit, unto the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit, and you get a different heavenly perspective of what takes place. And again, in chapter 21 and verse 10, you're going to find the Spirit takes him into the wilderness and into the high mountain and showed me the great city. So the only way that you can see in your spirit, you can make no description in the natural what you learn and what you can by heart and what you can read. But it's only from the Spirit you get to know about the new Jerusalem, holy Jerusalem descending from heaven from God. This is marvelous, and the way it closes about the Holy Spirit in chapter 22 and verse 17 of Revelation. Look what it says, and the Spirit and the bride says, Come, let him that hear it say, Come, let him that thirst come, whoso will let him take the water of life freely. And the Spirit and the bride says, Come. So it is the spirit of prophecy that the Lord Jesus Christ speaks about. Now, that being said, everything that we get to hear and get to see, John realized it was by the spirit. We can get perspective of men, people do, with their philosophical mind, with sitting down and fasting and praying, but if it's not the Holy Spirit, they get an understanding which is not bad. Uh, religion and founders of religion sit down on top of a mountain and hill and go through penance and they give us a fairly decent picture. But what you need is not from a man's perspective about what they find, which is not bad, but from God's perspective. That's how Jesus comes to speak to us about the Father. We're not getting from an earthly, but one that has seen the Father in the bosom of the Father. So in the same way, we're getting a perspective, not every spirit, that's familiar spirit. Ah, this is what the Lord says, and they tell you something. And if you know very well your scriptures, you're saying the so-called prophet is nothing but a liar, is a fake, giving fake, because the whole thing is not theology. 
We live in a world today, in a church today, churches all across the world, they are trying to tell us humanism. It's concerning man. What do I get? And always it's about man word. You can go into a library or you can go into a Christian bookstore and do the self. Look at the shells that is to do. But the Bible is about theology, the study of God. And that is not from a man's point of view, but it comes from the Holy Spirit point of view. I want you to realize, number three, that I find that is very important between the Revelation chapter 4 and 5 is this word in chapter 4 and verse 2 of the book of Revelation. I was in the Spirit. Behold, there was a throne and one that sat on the throne. This is something very important, particularly when you realize that this word throne you can find everywhere in the scriptures. But when you look at this word throne in the book of Revelation, barring two, all the other has to do with the throne of God. Thirty times, while the Lamb is mentioned 31 times, I'll talk about it, the throne is mentioned 30 plus times. Just in chapter 4 is... 14 times going all the way to chapter 5. That's how important the throne is. So when you realize the throne, you're realizing in chapter 4 and chapter 5, it's to do with the one who is the creator. It's the one who's made all things for his pleasure. The throne has to do with the lamb that is in the midst thereof. It is to do and the songs of creation to the Creator and the songs of redemption to the Lamb that was slain. But now you come to this word throne, it is very, very powerful word. And when you look at this word, it becomes very important. And particularly the one that sits on the throne. There are many aspects of the throne. And when you look at it, you have basically the white throne judgment to do with the Father, nations, what's both because, and the simple, what do you do with Jesus? And all their good works, if they think there's a big book opened, and there are two books. One is the Lamb's Book of Life. It's your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And the other is to do what you did in life. It's like a recorded history. Many years ago, they were saying, how could you keep uh, adrift of everything that takes place? Now in a day, where the government knows everything about you, including what time you eat breakfast and what you're saying right in your bedroom, the basically it's not hard to imagine nowadays everything is possible. But I want you to understand what is so important is this throne is also Christ's throne. You're going to find that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and that is to do with rewards and judgment. But that being said, it's important for us to understand while we talk about many thrones and the 24 elders in, Genesis, in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 4 talking 24 chairs, that's less a throne. And then priests and kings, they have thrones too. But this is the throne in chapter 4 and verse 2. The throne. And that's of supreme importance. It's simply saying, who is on the throne. I don't have time today to talk about the usurper, the one that was at one moment, the morning star who became the loo, who was the luminous one who became an angel of light, become darkness. One who wanted to grab the center and just failed miserably. But the throne is the center, not for the throne's sake, because of the one who becomes the centerpiece. The one to whom all things due. The one who controls. That is important. Because were you to read chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, 13, and so forth, you can get a wrong perspective unless it comes from the perspective of the one who rules forever and forever. He's still on the throne 
And he's still controlling, will control, will always win. And I want you to understand, not for a single moment is that throne without the one that sits on it. He is the ultimate, bringing perfect justice and bringing the perfect rulership. And I want you to understand all of this is, is legislated and executed by the one that is the lamb on the throne who is also the king of kings and the Lord of lords in chapter 19 and verse 16 of the book of Revelation. What is so important about the throne is when I talk about theology, many of us get a, maybe a half a view of the throne. Most of our songs in the Pentecostal and evangelical is to do with Jesus and the Lamb. But we need to understand, to get a fuller perspective, you need to know, yes, the Lamb, but the one that sits on the throne is that one that is important. You see, when you look at, there is a throne, and the throne is occupied. And the throne is in the center. And that simply means that the world and the universe is not spinning around us. At one moment, we thought the earth was spinning around the sun, moon, and stars were spinning around the earth until 1550 AD. Copernicus discovered absolutely not and later by Galileo, simply meaning no. It is the earth rotating around the sun. And we need to get the proper picture only because the throne is not saying, can I help you? Can I help you? I'm just a waiter. No, 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 no. We wait on God. God doesn't wait on us. He is absolute. He's the great one. So we live in a world, we are pampered. Oh, yes, the throne is just rotating. Can I help you? Like, put a little prayer like Aladdin's lamp. And voila! What can I do for you? You got the wrong perspective. You keep praising God. You keep thanking God. God is on the throne, not you or me. Now, I want you to understand something very important. The world in which we live need to understand things are not rotating around us, nor is God. Everything rotates around the throne. So that simply is the geocentric. Needs to change. To understand that the earth rotates around the sun and the sun is rotating around like all of the Milky Ways and everything is rotating around. To what? To who? Bang in the center is the throne. And one that sits on the throne. Chapter 4, verse 2. Look at it again. Why don't you name the one? He's called El He is God in a figurative way, Elohim. And he introduced himself a Yahweh. And the many hyphenated Yahweh, Jireh, and so forth. The one. And the reason John in the Spirit is describing the one simply means that one. In other words, what is important is, cannot be described. You gave stones, you give lights, you give sound, you see rainbow. You can describe all of these stones. They're given names. The bow is called the rainbow, reminding us of Genesis chapter 9, verse 13 and 14, the covenant keeping God. But pray, why not describe the one? There's no image of the one that sits on the throne. Which is interesting, the Catholic Church and many in the Orthodox Church have sorts of an image, but the Catholic Church doesn't have an image of the Father. The Russian Church don't have image. And again, let me just say, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 4 tells us, among the Ten Commandments, don't make an image of any graven image and likeness to anything. And so you do have basically 
uh, in the Orthodox Church, whether you go to Ethiopia or Greece or whether you go down to the Syrian, which is Antioch, the church from where Paul started, much later it evolved into what would be the Orthodox Church and then Greek and Russian churches. They are what is called as icon. That is not idols, but again paintings glittered with gold. But what is very interesting is there's no description of the Father. So when you go back to the ancient writing, St. John of Damascus writes and says, there should not be any painting of the Father because no one has seen the Father. No one has seen God. John chapter 1 verse 18 simply echoes even what St. John of uh, Jerusalem quoted. No man had seen God any time. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father has declared him so. So when you look at that part, I want you to understand there's one that sits on the throne. This comes smack against the wisdom and the image of the world. Rome said, you have someone on the throne. He's called Caesar. So when Democrats have someone, they have a president. Biden. When the Republicans have a president, they have someone called Trump. I wanted to understand they are not on the throne by any stretch of imagination. Nor the Saudi king or King Charles. No! The man in London has two things. He just legislates and he can basically sign the change of the government. Otherwise, he's a paper stamp king. But here is the one who's supreme, who has the power and who can execute. And I want you to understand supreme. And the word is sovereign, altogether power. If you see what Psalm 62 and verse 11 says, look at the description. God has spoken once, twice have I heard that power. Someone said, absolute power corrupts man, but absolute power doesn't corrupt God. He is power and personification of that power. What you're going to find is the one that sits on the throne is supreme. So let me just say, I mentioned about we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That is a throne. There's a white throne judgment that is of the God the Father. And yet when you look at in a proper context, Let's read chapter 5 and verse 6. You do have the lamb and you have the throne. I beheld low in the midst of the throne. In the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. So you have lamb and you have the one who sits on the throne. Later on you're going to find Jesus as a throne. When you turn to chapter 6 and verse 16, you have two separate identities and yet one. Because you see the people who rejected the Lord say, say to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. When you turn to chapter 7 of the book of Revelation and verse 10, again you have, and they cried with a loud voice saying, salvation unto our God, that is the angelic being and all of those in heavenly hosts, Salvation to our God which sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. So you have the one who sits on the throne and you have the one that is the Lamb. Now when you realize this, you say, excuse me, it just baffles me. Again, just to run through the description that fits both the Father and the Lamb that is slain that you find in Psalm 48, verse 1, Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. And it goes on to say, in, to be praised in the city of a God, in the mountain of His holiness, beautiful for Zion, and goes on to say the joy. This is not Zion or Zionist that you're talking about in Israel, but this is the true Zion in heaven, the city of the great king. Of course, the Lord and the city of the great king. What you find again is a marvelous way that you find in Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 17. Oh Lord God, and it's a marvelous way he says, uh, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by your great power stretched forth and there is nothing too hard for you. 
Psalm 103 and verse 19 tells again about God who's prepared his throne in heaven and his kingdom ruleth all. Now, all that being said, I want you to understand when you think about this one who's on the throne and when you think of the great one, the majestic one, and the one who is called Elohim, El Elyon, and all that wonderful, marvelous uh, adjectives that you can add, and nations around the world will talk about God, great, mighty, and so forth. But when you think about the one who sits on the throne, Jesus describes him in a marvelous way. And that would be literally difficult for the Hebrew faith and the Islamic faith, because they cannot, they do not have a word for it, almost as a tantamount to blasphemy. And yet in the words of Jesus, every time he talked about God, he never used, never used Yahweh. That for the Jehovah's Witness. He never used this expression that we find common in the Old Testament. Except one time, he used El. That is, on the cross, on our behalf, in chapter 22 of Psalm 1, he finds, and he talks about, my God, my God, Ella Sabatni, why have you forsaken me? Only one time the word El. So what did he do all the other times? What you find is the fullest expression that only the one that has the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and the Spirit of God that makes him to cry, and that word is Abba. So when you turn to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, how then can I call God? This is the way you pray, he said. Where therefore when you pray, you say, and that is the commonality of all Christian denomination and Christian faith. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Why don't you say Yahweh, Adonai, El Elyon? Why don't you say all those adjectives and the, and the high and mighty way that you, which you alone can be described that the book of Psalms and the five Pentateuch, the five books of uh, Moses writes about the highest expression of the one in heaven, the one on the throne, because those who are of mankind, they only can use because they are saved. And they say, Abba. That is the highest form of intimacy. And this is marvelous when you think about it. Again, for us coming to the Lord Jesus Christ has everything to do with the Father. Look at the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 6 and verse 44, No man cometh unto me, except by the Father which sent me to draw. It's the Holy Spirit who brings us, open our eyes, and is the Father that draws us. So in the throne is the working of the guarded. There's a sense of the Father, the working of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the working of the Holy Spirit, the guarded in all his power and grace. So I want to realize, my friends, when you think about this majestic way the Lamb is called, he is the Lamb that is slain. Now running through, who is he? Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7 says, a Lamb that was slain. We find in the New Testament, John chapter 1, verse 29, behold the Lamb of God. You go all the way back to the book of Exodus chapter 12 to find out that is the Lamb that is very important, cardinal in the temple whether it's to, for man to come and have any sense of recognition from God, a lamb, a slain, the blood, that is so important. So when you go further, you're going to find what a marvelous way in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, he is our Passover. We don't need to go down and do all of that. He becomes the ultimate Passover. When you turn to 1 Peter chapter uh, one and uh, chapter 2 and verse 19, look at says here, the, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish and without spot. What is so marvelous, and I want you to understand this, the way that Paul writes, 
And if you could get your eyes open to this, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, think for a moment what Paul is saying. Without controversy, it becomes controversial to people who don't understand. Without controversy, great is the mystery of goodness, goodness or Godhead. God was manifest in the flesh, excuse me, he was, just, he was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of the angel, preached unto the Gentiles, believed unto the word, received unto glory. Who are we talking about? The one that is the slain lamb. I want you to realize the marvel of it all. That when you look at the throne, you see the one that sits on the throne. And the only way that you can know him as the father is go down and right in the midst is the land that was slain. And then the Holy Spirit. Thank God for the Lord Jesus Christ who died. Thank God for the Holy Spirit who opens our mind. Thank God that we can now go to the Almighty, no matter who you want to say, but we just call him Father, Abba, Daddy, because of the intimacy. That is the throne of God. You can describe in many ways, but we call him, Hi, Daddy. How you been? I had a rough day, but Daddy, I love you. Daddy, I know you are with me. My life, no matter how difficult it has been, help me to live for your glory. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray that you've been encouraged by the word of the Lord. To learn more, please visit our website, highlandny.org, or our Facebook page, Highland Church, New York. Until next time, may God richly bless you.